This morning we're continuing our four-part Christmas series. We're calling it Practicing the Stories of Christmas. And I chose that title because I think it's so important that Christmas for us doesn't become merely nostalgic, that we're not just telling stories, that it's not just about the past, but that it's a time of spiritual reflection. It's a time of spiritual formation where God actually works in our lives in the present so that he can prepare us for the work he wants to do in the future. So for us, in our celebration of Christmas, my hope is that, yes, of course, we will look back on the past, the ancient past. We will look at Jesus Christ come into the world. We almost, I think, automatically look back on our own lives, our own personal stories of Christmas's past, and those rise to the surface. But I also want to orient us around the meaning of Christmas so that God can do a deeper work in our hearts, that we can experience Christ with us in a deeper way than we ever have before, because God wants to do a work through us in the future. So that's my, my hope and my prayer. And so I'm calling it Practicing the Stories of Christmas because I believe these familiar stories that we tell every, uh, every year are meant to change our lives. And so the way I chose to do this was to look at the four angelic visits or annunciations as they've been called. There's four main annunciations. We looked first at Zacharias. And then we looked at Mary last week, and the shepherds will come to next week for our Christmas service. But this morning, we're going to look at the angelic annunciation to Joseph. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. And we'll be looking at verses 18 through 25. Matthew 1, 18 through 25. I'll also have the passage up on the screen behind me. And please follow along with me now as I read God's Word. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I just come before you this morning and I ask for the gift of your peace, your shalom, your abiding presence to be known and experienced in our hearts this morning. Lord, I know that I myself have tried to urge people as much as I can to try to slow down during the Christmas season and reflect on the true meaning, but I know many times this time of year does the opposite. Things seem to be extremely hectic. Life goes on. So much of the busyness of life and difficulties and trials of life don't just hit the pause button because it's a a holiday season. So, Lord, I I believe when I look at this Christmas story that the world didn't suddenly become perfect in order for your son to come into the world, but rather the world in all its imperfection, along with all the busyness and the chaos and even the human sin, your son came into the world right into the middle of messy human existence. 
And we can know that when we look at Jesus, we can know a God who is with us through every single season of life. The good and the bad. The up and the down. The mountaintops and the valley lows. The plains and the deserts. You are with us through every season of life. And so, Lord, I believe you are present with us this morning. And I just pray your Holy Spirit would speak to us because you want to form disciples through the story of Christmas. You want to form men and women to become those who want to live lives for your glory. And so we pray that we would come with all that we have and lay it at your feet and that we would be taught by you and that we might become like you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're looking at uh, the Annunciation of the Angel to Joseph, and I wanted to draw five lessons from this text, and so we'll just work our way through the text, and I'll share those points with you as we go. So the first section I want to look at are verses 18 and 19. Look again at those. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. So point number one, like Joseph, Christians are called to balance justice and mercy. So when it says in verse 19, then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, that doesn't solve the problem, that creates a problem. Because if, jo if Joseph is a just man, if he's dikaios, if he is a righteous man, that of course means he's a law-abiding man. And the law in question would of course be the Old Testament. It would be the Mosaic Covenant. And in Deuteronomy, according to the Mosaic Covenant, what should happen to a person who's caught in adultery? They are to be stoned. So if the law is Mary should be stoned, and Joseph is a law-abiding man, what is he to do? Well, we know what he does. He does not stone her. The text says, being a law-abiding man and not wanting to make her a public example was minded to put her away secretly. One of the problems with the Pharisees that we encounter in the New Testament is that they wanted to keep the law, but they didn't want to keep the spirit behind the law. And according to the New Testament, according to Jesus himself, not only does the letter of the law matter, but the spirit of the law matters. God doesn't just want rule-keeping people. He wants people who know what the rules are for. And God does not create the rules merely so people can conform to it. God creates rules because he knows this is best how human beings live in the world. It is for them. The Torah was never meant to be sort of a, a, a strict punishment or, oh, here you go, this is meant to be burdensome. The Torah was meant to be seen as a gift. That when God gives a rule, it's meant to be life-giving. And one of the things the Pharisees did not understand is God's heart behind the law. When God says that if somebody commits adultery, they're to be stoned, he's not wanting them to get stoned. The Bible says that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. He is not somebody who wants to take it to that degree. So one of the things we learn about the law, in at least one aspect of it, it's preventative. In other words, when we read the harsh punishments of the Old Testament, it's not that God's not serious about it, but one of the reasons it's there is because God wants you to see how serious sin is, and therefore he's hoping you won't do it. But God also knows we are sinners, and that we are going to break the law. We are going to fall short, and so we have to ask. Since we're sinners and we are going to break the law, what does God want to do? How does he want to apply the law? And one of the things the Old Testament says, and I love Micah 6, 8. It's a great verse. If you don't have it memorized, it's one worth memorizing because it holds these two tensions. How are you going to be just 
take the law seriously, and at the same time hold on to God's heart behind the law. And Micah 6.8 summarizes it in this way. And what does the Lord God require of you, O man, but to do justice, mishpat, keep the law, and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? God's heart is, yes, the law matters, the rules matter, we're not throwing them away. But on the other hand, it's not just about keeping the rules, and it shouldn't be done out of a heart of, oh, I want to slap the harshest penalty possible out of this rule. We actually see that God's heart is to be merciful without surrendering the high, holy, biblical standards. Nevertheless, God wants to show mercy. And so this explanation that Joseph is a just man creates a tension for him. Because if he's just a a law-abiding man, then Mary gets stoned. But I think what this text is saying is that Joseph is a righteous man in the truest biblical sense. That he doesn't only understand the need to be law-abiding, but the need to be merciful. There's a later story that his adoptive son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, is told about him in John chapter 8, and I think it highlights this same kind of righteousness or law-abiding character that we see in Jesus, and that is in John chapter 8 with the story of the woman caught in adultery. Let me read that to you. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, now early in the morning, and he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear them. So that when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Again, Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I think we see here clearly in Jesus, who is Emmanuel, God with us, the heart of God. And I find that this is a difficult tension for us imperfect human beings to maintain. It could partly be due to temperament. I also think it is partly a character and spiritual issue, but there's even a a temperament. And you kind of get the people who are on the mercy side, and they just want to let everything go. And the rules and the law and what God says doesn't matter. They're just like mercy, but no justice. But then on the other side, you get the justice people who want to keep the law. Hey, they're breaking the law. You know, what what good is a law if you're not going to keep it and enforce it? It's got to be the law. And no mercy. What we see in Jesus and what we see in Joseph is a union of the two. And I believe like Joseph, like Jesus, we are meant as Christians to balance both justice and mercy in our lives. A lot of attention is given to Mary, and rightly so, but I I look at this text and I see in Joseph a remarkable man. Especially by first century Palestinian standards that a man whose wife is caught in adultery, and even let's, let's even say he's not angry about it personally, which I highly doubt, but let's just say he's able to get over his ego and his pride and all that. He's still expected, 
in a shame-honor culture to have her killed for the honor of the family. Because it doesn't just shame him, it shames his whole family. Because the way betrothal worked, it was a public thing. The community knew about it. I explained a little bit about how this worked last week, but just to give you a little bit more background, so they're betrothed, which is sort of a hybrid of marriage and engagement. It's like engagement in that they have not lived together yet. They have not had sexual relations, but it's unlike our engagement in that if Mary is to be with another man, it's considered adultery. And to get out of the betrothal, you actually have to get a certificate of divorce. And it was common for the betrothed to spend a year or so apart from one another. So Mary is still living at her family's house. And Joseph is fulfilling all the obligations that a man at that time would be expected to fulfill. Things had been arranged with the other family. A bride price has been set. A ceremonial time of demonstrating purity and fidelity takes place. And so it's during all of this when the community would know and everyone would get together for the wedding. It is in this context that we see that Joseph did not want to make a public example of her, but was minded to put her away secretly, even though as far as Joseph knows, he's been wronged. He's been wronged. And he even has, here's the thing, because some of us, when we've been wronged, we don't care what's right, we're going to get revenge. That's how many of us are. I don't care what's right, I'm getting revenge, doesn't matter. Imagine how tempting it must have been for Joseph, who actually had a legal right, legal right, to have Mary stoned. And yet he foregoes his legal right. He says, here's, here's kind of the law standard, but I, I also see the heart of God who is merciful, and I'm not going to ignore the sin. Notice that. Notice Joseph didn't just wink at it and go, oh, well, whatever. He's going to divorce her, so he's taking it seriously. But notice the mercy and the care for Mary, even though, as far as he knows, she has committed adultery. What I see here is truly the heart of God. And a tension between justice and mercy. The rules and yet the grace to recognize people break the rules, and yet God loves people, and he wants us to try to hold on to relationships as best we can. Like Joseph, we too are called to balance justice and mercy. Let's look at verse 20. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Point number two. Though at times it may seem that God is not watching over us, He is watching and waiting to act according to His timing. Notice what it says at the very first part of verse 20. But while He thought about these things. Notice, you know, if, if I'm Joseph, and God comes, the angel comes to me and says, hey, don't be afraid to take Mary. I know you're thinking about divorcing her. You probably thought about the law, the law she's gets stoned. You're probably thinking about, oh my gosh, I, I did all this to be betrothed. What's my family going to think? Where am I going to go? What, what are we going to do? Who's the guy? I mean, all this natural stuff that's going through your mind. And then finally, you know, the angel comes and we read the story. We're like, oh, isn't that nice? It all worked out. My question is, couldn't the angel have told me first like, like, why not? Notice, while he thought about these things, God gave Joseph time to worry about these things. I mean, I don't know exactly what the details are. It doesn't say, but it seems that it's the angel that informs Joseph. So Mary didn't seem to inform him. So how did he find out? 
right? How did he, he knew that she was pregnant because he's getting ready to divorce her. And apparently no one told him it was of the Holy Spirit. So Mary didn't say anything about the angel, either that or she did, but he didn't believe her. He's like, yeah, right, an angel, uh-huh, right. God actually allows Joseph to go through this season of worry, anxiety, doubt, and confusion. He allows it while he thought about these things. There was an appointed time for God to reveal what was going on. And me and my lack of faith and my impatience, I want God to tell me that immediately. I don't want to go through a season of doubt and worry and anxiety and fear and and discomfort. I don't want to go through that. Some of the most trying times are the waiting times. I don't know about you, but that's, that's the main thing. I feel like, and, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm just boasting here, but you know, I feel like I can handle most things in life, as bad as they are. What I really can't handle is not knowing. Like, it's the not knowing, you know what I mean? It's like, man, if I just got to do this horrible, hard thing, it's going to be painful, it's going to hurt really bad, just let me know, and then all boom, I'll just get it done. You know, tear the Band-Aid off. But one of the ways God teaches us is often by not telling us what we want to know when we want to know it. When he actually allows us to process all these things according to what we can see and what I can hear, to use natural human reasoning, oh, well, I, you know, we're not living together and we haven't had relations, she's pregnant, well, gee, do the math, it's obviously she had an affair, she committed adultery, and, and of course I'm going to have to go down and get a divorce, and of course everyone's going to raise a stink about this, and I'm going to, you know, people are going to say, why didn't you stone her, you, you didn't just bring dishonor on yourself, the whole family, he's going through all this. And it could probably feel like, God, where were you? I mean, let's humanize Joseph for a minute. How would that have felt to be there? To be Joseph. I know I've walked with men and women through my years of pastoring who've been in that place where they either suspected they were being cheated on or they were. And there's, then there's all the fear and all the doubt and all the confusion and all the anxiety. And then in addition to the hurt, there's just the confusion of, well, what do I do about it? If I, if I could figure, I mean, part of the hurt is I just don't know what to do about it. And God, it can seem like he's not there. That he's not sovereign over that situation. But what we see here in this text is that there will be times like Joseph's where it might not feel like God is watching over this situation. But what we also see in this text is he is watching and he will wait to act according to his timing, not yours. If he acts according to our timing, we don't grow in faith. We actually grow in self-confidence. That's why God has to act according to his timing, not mine. If God dances to my tune, I don't grow in faith. I grow in pride and self-confidence. I'm like, man, look at me. Look at all these decisions I make. I'm like, oh yeah, I knew this was coming. I could see this. Oh, and everyone else like made a bad decision on this stock. Look how I saw it coming and I sold and I did this and look what I did. Oh, look at all that. I grow in self-confidence and pride. But when God doesn't dance to my tune, he's not even playing the same song. Not even the same genre. And I'm like, what in the world? Are you even watching over this? Maybe your eyes are somewhere else. Maybe you look at somebody else's life and you're like, man, his eyes are on them. But they're not on me. He's kind of forgotten about me, but he's always sure looking at them. I just want to encourage you this morning if this is you. If you're feeling like God is not watching over you because you're going through a season of doubt, discomfort, fear, pain, or anxiety, I just want to encourage you. God is watching over you. And though I don't know the details, I can tell you this. I do, in a sense, know why you're going through it. Because God wants to purge you from your pride and your self-confidence and to cause you to become 
a childlike man or woman who trusts in God for every single thing you have. Remember what the Lord's after is your heart. He wants you. He wants you to call him Abba, Father, Dada, Daddy. And that's humbling language. As a grown man, grown woman, self-sufficient, I've worked for this, I've earned this, I've trained for this. And to have everything just fall apart. And to come to a place in life where once again you can look at God and just say, Abba, I need you. Daddy, I need you. The Lord is watching. And he will act according to his timing. Let's look at verse 21. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Point number three, Jesus won't save you from everything you want, but he'll save you from everything you need. For us as modern Christians looking back on the Bible, the New Testament, the Old Testament, Sometimes we can just take it for granted. Oh, yeah, of course, Jesus, he forgives our sins. Like, that's what he does. That's what a Savior does. But we forget that that was not the main focus for most of those in the Jewish community in the first century. That's just not where their minds were at chiefly. Now, it's not to say it wasn't there. Of course they cared about Sins mattered, and you know, there's the temple, and we're offering bloody sacrifices, which is an, an ever-recurring reminder that, yes, we've sinned against a holy God, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So yes, yes, that. But what was most tangible, most visible, was the Roman occupation before their eyes. To live every day and not to be able to live out everything you believe. Because remember, they were limited. They couldn't enact all the, the things of the Torah, even if they wanted to. The Romans would not allow it. The Romans were sovereign. The Romans had a fortress in Jerusalem. The Romans would make sure not too many Jews got together in one place and got too excited, or else they would slaughter them to make sure there were no riots and tumults, which we know there had been quite a few, and Pilate was sort of on his last legs. One more insurrection and Pilate is gone, which is probably why Pilate washes his hands of Jesus and turns him over. Political expediency. He was on his last leg with Caesar. So for most people, it's not that the idea of sinning against God and a relationship with God didn't matter, but I think it hits more close to home. What is it you want to be saved from this morning? If I asked you that, I mean, honestly, don't give me the classroom answer. Oh, I want to be forgiven of my sins, Pastor. That's why I'm here. It's like, honestly, for most people, it's like, I want to be saved from this financial crisis. I want to be saved from this marriage problem. I want to be saved from this physical ailment. I want to be saved from this relational ba bankruptcy, this, this thing that's going on. I want to be saved from these things. That is so often, when we come to church, we come with these things. And they are the most tangible because you wake up with these things. You see them all day long. You're constantly reminded of them. They affect your emotions. They affect your thoughts. You feel like you're a fish just swimming around in them. And, we can, and we, our prayers can just be gone. Save me from this. And if you understand what I'm saying, that we can focus so much on the things that we can see that relate to things of this world, and it becomes the primary thing we want God to save us from, then we can start to understand the way that the first century Jews would have looked at the Messiah. They were looking for a Savior from the things they could see. Lord, at this time, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? Is a question that Jesus' disciples asked. One of the things that you encounter in the Gospels that's strange for many people is the idea that Jesus often pushed back against many of the attempts to make him king. 
the attempts to make him Messiah. It's like, why would he do that? If he is the Messiah, and if he is the king, why is he, in the Gospel of Mark, for example, always telling people to be quiet and not tell anyone? Is that a great way to run for president? Tell everybody not to talk about you? Like, don't tweet me. Don't show up in my campaign. Don't buy any bumper stickers. Don't, I don't want anyone to know that I'm running for president. How are you going to win? You know, I'm not a political genius, but I, that doesn't seem like a great idea to me. The reason Jesus does that throughout the Gospels is because he knows they have a wrong idea of what a Savior is. The primary thing that Jesus came to do was to save us from our sins. And that is the significance, the central significance of Jesus coming into the world and his ministry recorded in these words of the angel, you shall call his name Yahoshua, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. What I'm trying to say is many times what is most important to God in your life is not the most important to you. And many times what is the most important thing in your life is not the most important thing to God. And I'd say one of the things that biblical spirituality must mean is exchanging our priorities for God's. That that's what the Christian life is. It's, it's one of continual repentance, a continual change where our allegiance, not just belief at one point in time and I'm fine, but this continual shift of complete allegiance to Jesus, which means a reorganizing of our priorities. And the thing that God is most concerned about is the sin in your life. That's not to say God doesn't care about the Romans. Of course he does. That's not to say God doesn't care about the money problems. Of course he does. It's not to say he doesn't care about the relationship problems or the health problems or anything else. Of course he does. His eyes are on you. And he loves you. And he is good. But he is chiefly committed to your holiness. He wants to purge us of sin. He wants to lead us in the path of righteousness for his name's sake, as the psalmist says. And so what we need to know, because many times we, like the crowds in the Gospels, are disillusioned by what kind of Savior Jesus actually turns out to be. Jesus won't save you from everything you want. That's not the kind of Savior Jesus is. He doesn't necessarily come into your life to make it all easier. Sometimes he makes it harder. But what he did come to do, what it is his nature and calling to do, is to save you from all that you need to be saved from. And that is chiefly our sins. And so if we want to understand the meaning of Christmas, we have to understand God's heart, his priorities. Why did he come into this world of ours? It wasn't just to make things easier. It was to make us holier. Let's look at verses 22 through 23. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord to the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Point number four is this. God's sovereignty does not guarantee that life will be easy but it does guarantee that all will be worked for good. There was a tremendous leap just made in those two verses, verses 22 and 23. Of course, here the angel is quoting a passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 7:14. It's a very important messianic Christmas passage. Now, Isaiah said those words some 700 years prior to this. And within that span of 700 years, you can imagine the kinds of things that happened. 
We know from the Bible many of the things that did in fact happen. The people that rose up and the people that fell, the people that were born and the people that died, the nations that came, the nations that left. Seasons and cycles of life happened for 700 years. All for this moment. God was guiding those 700 years so that at one point in time, when the time was right, God would bring forth His Son into the world. The seed of the woman. The seed of Abraham. The Messiah, the Lord. God had to oversee everything that happened and God's sovereignty never mitigates human responsibility. We make real choices and God holds us really responsible. But we should never think that because we make real choices and we're really responsible that God somehow cannot be sovereign over all the affairs of men. Because He is. And when we read the Old Testament, we should think this way. This is how the apostles read the Old Testament. They read it with an eye to Jesus. So when you're in those sections of Scripture and you're asking yourself in the Old Testament, what in the world is this about? What's going on here? Good grief. Why did he let that happen? What is this about? I don't see, how's this going to work out? How, what, you know, and you're going back and forth and seeing all this stuff. But remember what Matthew has showed us here. That behold, all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and will bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. God is sovereign over all things, and he is able and willing to work all things together for our good. Romans 8.28, Paul the Apostle, reflecting on this same sovereignty of God that we see here over human history. And he speaks these words of promise to believers. And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. It's not your job to work all things together for good. I know some of us try to do that. We're trying to be the sovereign one who gets everyone and everything to go the way we want. Notice in that text, we are not the ones who do that. God works it all together for good. We don't do that. God does. God ties the loose ends together. We don't. But what we are to do is stated very succinctly. We are to love God. And we are to live according to His purpose. That's what you do. So when you're looking at the sovereignty of God, and you are, you're trusting in that, He's going to get my story, my life, this situation, where He wants it to go. And I'm leaning on that. That's why I'm not paralyzed by fear and doubt. Because I believe God is sovereign and He's getting it to where He wants it to go. And I believe that it is good. And my job is not to worry and fret hoping to somehow secure the outcome. My job is to love God and to live according to His purpose. And so we too are called to surrender our lives to the good, sovereign hand of God, knowing He will work it together for good as we endeavor to love Him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Our last point we'll get from verses 24 and 25. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Lastly, number five, do what God says, not what you feel. One of the hardest things for us to do, and I think it's always been hard, but maybe even harder in our culture today, because we teach people, I, I mean, I don't know that you do necessarily, but our culture does teach people, teaches us, teaches young people to do what you feel. Disney is famous for saying, follow your heart. 
which if you kind of parse it out in the canon of Disney cinema, is follow your heart means do what you feel. So it's not necessarily talking about the, the rational will or something, which some people attribute to the heart, but it's this idea of emotion. Do what you feel. If you don't feel in love with your spouse, well then go, with, go be with someone you do feel it. That's what many people say. The law is not what God says, it's what I feel. Or if God calls you, again, to live righteously, to do what is right, and you see people are prospering by doing what is evil, and you might feel, well, gosh, they're paying the bills, and they're doing dodgy stuff, and I'm doing what's right, and, and I'm, I can't pay my bills. You can be, well, what I feel is, well, this, this looks more secure, and I'll feel better if I do that. You don't do what you feel. You do what God says. Interestingly, I think we, we can assume perhaps that on a dime after this angelic visit, Joseph just changes his feelings. Maybe he does. But from my observation of human nature, most people can't change their feelings on a dime. You, you can't just do that. And, and he certainly believes the angel, so in his mind, he's like, okay, okay, so let me process this. Um, I saw my fiance. She was pregnant. It wasn't me. Uh, it was some other guy. And I've been pondering this, and this is going like, to kind of like ruin my life and cause all kinds of problems. And how, okay, I'll, I'll divorce her, but, but I, I don't want her to be killed. I'll, I'll do it quietly. So he's going through all that. That's attached to emotion. He's a human being. And then the angel comes and says, hey, the situation's not quite what you think. And I have a hard time believing Joseph just immediately feels entirely different. It doesn't say, then Joseph, being aroused from seat, did as he felt. Notice what it says. Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Notice that the text does not emphasize Joseph doing what he wanted. Joseph doing what he felt. He did what the angel commanded. It's the sense of obedience that we see with Joseph. I don't know how he felt. He may still have been, okay, so she didn't commit adultery, that's great, but maybe I don't want to be the adoptive father. Did you ever think of that? Maybe it's fine that you're a single dad or a single mom, but that, you know, and that's fine. I don't hold that against you, but that doesn't mean I want to marry you and, and have an instant family. I mean, that, that, no offense, just maybe I don't want to do that. Who's to say whether he felt that way or not? But what I would say is, either way, it didn't matter. What emphasizes is Joseph was a man, a righteous man, who did what God said. And I underlined the last line there because this is a part of the obedience. It says, and he called his name Jesus. Now, I don't think a lot of people understand the significance of that statement, but it's very important. Whenever a father would name their son or their daughter, that was a legal act. By naming them, you are claiming them. So what the angel was calling Joseph to do was not merely to acknowledge that Mary hadn't had an affair, but to marry her anyway and to adopt Jesus as his own. Once again, that, that's beyond necessarily what Joseph felt like doing. Joseph, this is not your son. Granted, it's not adultery, but it's still not your son. But I want you to act as though it is. I want you to adopt Jesus as your legal son. And the stakes on this are high. If Joseph refuses to do this, all the prophecies of the Old Testament fall apart. Because if you notice, if you're a student of the New Testament, you notice there's two different genealogies given in the Gospels. One in Matthew and one in Luke. And they're not the same. We'll do the math on that. Why do you think there's two different genealogies? Well, Luke traces the physical descent or ancestry of Jesus through Mary. So what about Joseph? Why does Joseph matter? Why does it matter that he doesn't just acknowledge that Mary's not an adulterer? Why does it matter that uh, Joseph actually marries her and legally adopts Jesus? 
because the royal line comes through Joseph. The royal lineage is a legal lineage, which is why it is different. If Jesus is to be the son of David, and notice what the angel called Joseph, by the way. Joseph, son of David. That is the significance. That is what is at stake. And in this situation, you see kind of highlighted the theological conundrum of God's sovereignty. He's going to fulfill Isaiah 7.14 no matter what anyone does for 700 years. And yet here it seems on the surface to hang in the balance. Joseph, will you fulfill God's sovereign plan for history? Will you fulfill God's sovereign plan for your life and adopt Jesus as your own? And Joseph's answer is yes. Not yes, I feel like it. Not yes, I'll do it if I want to. But I will do what I am commanded by the Lord to do. Martin Luther had a famous little ditty, little song he would teach the children. And he said, Feelings come and feelings go, but feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God, not else is worth believing. I think he was highlighting this same principle here. We are so often led by the law of our feelings. I will obey the Bible, I will serve, I will give, I will love, I will forgive, I will work, I will let go, I will do, as long as I feel like it. It's one of the biggest problems in American Christianity today, is most people follow their feelings rather than God's word. It's a sad state when in the pulpit the same happens. People will say what people want to hear because that's what they feel. It's what they want. They don't want to hear their feelings are not right. There's, because there's a challenge there. There's an incongruity. And it's not comfortable. And when you come in wanting to hear what you feel is perfectly right, perfectly natural, you should do it. And then the Word of God says, no. What you feel is called disobedience. And understandably, I don't think anyone likes that. But if the Spirit of God is working on our hearts, we can actually crave the correction of God's fatherly hand. Because we know when we feel uncomfortable when the Word is preached. And our feelings are coming into conflict with the Word of God. We can know that it's God's loving fatherly hand that is fulfilling his plan for our lives. Did you know that God's plan is fulfilled through your life when you obey his word? How many people have come to me and say, Mike, Pastor Mike, I just, I want to know what God's will is for my life. And it's, you know, this decision or that or the other. But many times it's not the obvious things in scripture. Do this. Commit your heart to me. Give to me. Serve, love, forgive. John Corson, a, a well-known pastor in Calvary circles, used to have this saying. He said, do what you know, then you'll know what to do. Do what you know, then you'll know what to do. And what he meant by that is, do what the Bible says. If times are dark or confusing, you can easily get lost trying to figure all that out. Do what you know. You know what God has said here. Like, I don't know about this, that, or the other, but I know God says this. You do that. Be diligent about doing that, and God will reveal in time what you are to do about the details. Do what you know in God's word. Then you'll know what to do. Do what God says, not what you feel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just come before you this morning and I, I marvel at how a story so familiar can yet in certain ways be so unfamiliar when we actually hear the challenge of the Christmas story that it challenges what we think 
and it challenges how we live. And it often goes against what the culture around us is bombarding us with. Lord, I just pray that this Christmas season, whether things are, we're able to reflect and slow down or whether it's, it's busy and chaotic and hectic, but no matter what, would you just come into our lives in a deeper way? Would you grant us the gracious experience, and we don't deserve this, but we know you're loving and kind, you're merciful. Would you just allow us to experience Jesus as Emmanuel, God, with us? Help us to know that. Would you teach that to our hearts? If there's any doubting hearts this morning that don't believe God is with us, I don't feel like you are with me. Perhaps this season is dark and you feel like you can't see. The Lord can give us eyes of faith so that the darkness can become light. Lord, would you help us to experience Jesus as the God who is with us? Would you help form us into men and women who do your will? That our delight, like Joseph, a truly righteous man who did justice but loved mercy. Lord, help us to be merciful to others as you have been to us. But help us to also, by your grace, to pursue your standards of holiness without abandoning them on the other. Would you just do a work in our hearts now and in this season, and would you bless us so that we can be a blessing to others? that we can invite others into the true meaning of Christmas, which is the meaning of Jesus Christ himself. We thank you that you are the God who forgives sins, who buries them and separates them as far as the east is from the west and remembers them no more. Help us to remember that Jesus is the God who saves us from our sins. We thank you for this and we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.